In the fall of 2016, the Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Art organized a trip to India and Dharamsala. The itinerary included stops in Mumbai, Agra, Delhi, Varanasi, and Dharamsala, which is located in the upper reaches of the Congo Valley. It's the second winter capital of the Indian state of Himachal Pradesh, and also the headquarters for the Tibetan government in exile. Welcome to the third and final part of our podcast about this exotic trip. I'm Rudy Basich, an advisor here at the Jacques Barchet, and today I'll ask questions of board member Peg Harrington, who'd organized this tour, about her experience. But before we find out what colorful memories she has to reveal, I'd asked her what makes a Jacques Marchais tour so unique. The trip is really open to anyone who has an interest in seeing an Asian country. I've traveled in Asia before, so I've been able, when we set up the trip, do pre-arrangements that reflect the interest of the people who are going on the trip and whatever needs they have ahead of time. We don't take more than 14 people because that's a group of people who can relate to each other and we're usually in a smaller bus or facility and it's easy to accommodate them in a variety of hotels and or in the activities of getting on and off a camel, riding uh, you know, an elephant, which is what we did in part of the days in India. And we have found that most of our travelers want to return and travel again. So that means something about their enjoyment of the trip and the different activities while we're there. So it's a little cozier. Oh, definitely cozier and very much arranged to accommodate our travelers. Whether someone has a food allergy or they can't get on and off a big bus, we've come up with solutions to that that we've worked in every country that we visited in to make it more comfortable for our traveler. Great. Thank you, Peg. Last month's podcast, we ended up in Delhi. Now we're on our way up the mountain to Dharamsala. Dharamsala is the northeastern part of India. It used to be an Indian outstation, you know, when they had the British going to the summer places in the north and the mountains to get away from the heat of the plains where Delhi was. And there was a place there called McLeod Ganj. That was a British military station on the way corner. And when the Dalai Lama escaped from Tibet over the mountains into India in 19. 19- 59. They brought him initially, and we've seen pictures of this, they brought him initially to Delhi to meet with the government and to have communication about what was going to happen next. That is when the Indian government, free and independent Indian government, gave McLeod Ganj to the Dalai Lama as his place to stay in exile. So it's almost like a big peninsula at the top of the mountain that's surrounded by China and Tibet. But it is Indian, and it is the Tibetan homeland in exile. Mm. So given that we represent the Tibetan Museum, we were all excited to see Dharamsala. So we flew into the mountains, and we land, and we get on a bus, and we have to travel by bus quite a few miles to get up far enough to be in McLeod Ganj, Dharamsala. And, um, so it was, uh, it was a pretty small plane then, I take it. There were four across. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting (laughs) about the Marche Museum is that she was involved and interested in Tibet before the Dalai Lama left Tibet and before there was any Lama in the United States. She was a follower 
partially because of the Bond figures she'd played with as a child, which are animus figures, but also because she was very interested in Asian art. And she had an art gallery on 57th Street in Manhattan. And she created the Tibetan Museum where people could learn about Tibetan art and history and religion. Again, before there was a Lama here and before the Dalai Lama was known to the world escaping uh, Tibet. But he resides as his main home in Dharamsala. So you go on this road and you're seeing... Indian houses and Indian businesses. It's not crowded. It feels a lot different than India because there's so much space and so few people. And you're going and you see some beautiful trees and river cuts that are coming down out of the mountains. So Dharamsala is a rural area of At, India. Well, what I'm describing is a rural area that gets us to Dharamsala. Mm-hmm. Dharamsala yeah, is getting... a city. <laughs> oh, it, it is. Okay. I won't say a big city. And was it but it's what, on the side of a mountain. When it was still an outpost, was it a city then too or just no, a port? No, it was just open <clears throat> land that was on the edge of the country. So well, you're in this yeah. bus and you're driving up this narrow road and we're not in, in Dharamsala proper yet, but we're in the outskirts and you have to pull into a bus terminal that's a turnaround and we all have to get out and go and get into taxis with our bags and everything. In the meantime, it's pouring out. We're on the side of a mountain. People are trying to get where they're going, regular people. There were very many Sikhs. It's the first time I'd seen that many Sikhs in one place. Mm. And they're out walking in the rain. And then they all laughed and tried to help us when they had to move the bus in and get us out and get us into these little cars because we couldn't get up into Dharamsala without being in a little car. So now we have six little cars and we're crowded and we all have the bags or somebody else's bags and we go up the rest of the mountain because it's narrow and it's the edge of the mountain and you go into Dharamsala, which turns out to be a very crowded place where mostly Tibetans, but some Indians and Sikhs live. And it's it's a city that has been developed after 1959 to service or meet the needs of the people who came with the Dalai Lama. So lovely town with shops and people and food and everybody in Tibetan garb and many lamas on the street. We stop in front of this place. It's our hotel. We get out. This side is on the busy side with all the shops. But when you get in and you're in your room, you're looking down the side of the mountain on a street which has all Tibetan I wouldn't call them stores, but they're just a covered wooden table. Then you go up and you begin to see... Like a market. Yes, like a market. market. But it's on the side of the mountain going down. Mm-hmm. And then you get to see the medical care for the Tibetans and the older care, because all of the Tibetan buildings start at the top of that street and then go into McLeod Ganj to where the Dalai Lama was. So, of course, we get out and we walk. We walk all the way up and we begin to see the different... Buildings which are very crowded, which have been created by the Tibetans there as their homeland in exile. So you have a foreign policy building, you have a school and a museum, you have the printing works, the formal government buildings. They have established themselves. They're all in Tibetan style on the top of this mountain in the middle of nowhere, but it's fascinating. We come back to the hotel, and the gentleman in the hotel says, would you like to have a Lama come and speak to you? And we said, oh, yes, please. please. So we arranged for him to come at 6 o'clock. So we're all sitting down waiting for him to come, and he walks in, and our executive director and one or two others in our group got up, 
because we knew him. He had visited us in New York. (laughs) It was so funny because we never expected that it would be someone we knew. So he remembered and he laughed and he had his niece with him and his nephew. And he he sat down and he talked to us for a while. But because we'd known him before and because his niece and nephew were there and are much more Western, the younger generation, there was an extended conversation about life in Dharamsala and life as a Tibetan in exile. And that's why you were there, to find out right. about life. And it was, I mean, we were going to find out with our formal meetings, but this was so informal, but with a person we knew. So it was very exciting. Then the next day, we walked up the hill again, and we stopped in the photo museum, which is an historical museum. And we had met the executive director of that museum when he'd come to New York to see our museum. We loved his museum. We spent a great deal of time there because the photos tell the story. It's really a well-crafted 21st century museum with film and photos to tell the story. We now have part of our film collection in Dharamsala on display at their museum. The Jacques Marchais yeah, collection. Yeah, the Jacques Marchais right. collection. Was that already there when you went on this trip? Well, was that since then? How long ago was it that the collection was sent to uh, Durham? Oh, when they were at our museum. Mm. We said, well, when we go, we'll see what you have, and then we can give you a sense of what we have that fits. So that conversation took place during this visit, and the pictures have since been sent to Dharamsala to be on their walls for about a year. The executive director of the museum then took us through the rest of Dharamsala, or I would say McLeod Ganj, where there is a monastery, there is the place where he lives, there is a beautiful temple, and there were various government buildings. So he wound up taking us to a school, which was also a museum. So we got to see the school, and the manager, if you will, he was a lama met us and brought us up to the top of the building so we could see more of the view from the building, and then spent about an hour with us again talking about the history of Tibet, the Tibet Museum, and what was here and what was being planned. So as we're sitting there, they're building a building right next door to us. The men were moving the concrete and doing whatever, but the women were carrying up bundles on their head of sand and then bricks because that was the way you got the materials you needed for building up the side of the mountain. Right. Yeah. So it was, and we took pictures of them and they laughed and they, should, you know, waved their hands. Maybe they'll be building a, a new patala there. Yeah, <laughs> Who's right. to say? I would think one of the things high on the agenda once you got there would be to see what they had in their collection. <laughs> and I was wondering how would that compare to what we have at the Jacques Marche? Interesting question because the museum was modern and had photography and videos, you know, and clips. So it is of the same time as we are, 21st century, in terms of what they have there. And we've asked to borrow some of their photos as well because we thought there was a great history of Tibet in a wall arrangement they had. And we would like to set it up in our museum if we can get the pieces oh, here. That would be, yeah, very you know, agree Because that. that was the one where we all said, oh, this is very interesting and it's a very good learning device. In the school, which also had a museum, it was set up to show the kinds of things we have in our museum, the icons and the statuary Avalotesvara, uh, some of the llamas from before, the Rinpoches, they had some paintings, and they also had an altar set up. It was different than ours, but you could see immediately that it was an altar. But it is similar 
to the altar we just found in storage and put into the museum that was built in 1910 in Canton, China. It's now on display in our museum with the icons in place where they should be in it, and it's gorgeous. They had a smaller version of it, so we could see the commonality of the situation. And then the temples that was closest to where the Dalai Lama lived had interesting photographs of some of the high lamas and the Rinpoches that had preceded him with a history. And there was a place to light candles in honor of the place where you were at, really, and the fact that you had made it there. And that's what I said about the unanimity of religions around the world. You find very, very similar practices. You could walk around and see the mountain going down, and there were some Tibetan women praying in the space, and they spoke to us. We spoke with them and had a conversation about what this place means and why it meant to them. Then we went out and saw the monks, and they were practicing oratory. And in Tibetan oratory, when they practice, they stand up and they speak very authoritarianly and and very straightforward and very strong. And then at the end, they slap their hands, which means they're finished. And then the other person speaks back and again, slaps their hands. So they're being observed by a teacher who will say, oh, good or not, or then say and tell them how to do it and do it again, and they practice again. Mm. The funny part about it was that we were in Drepong Monastery in Tibet four years earlier when we started this program, and some of the people who were with me in Dharamsala were with me in Tibet, and we visited the Drepong Monastery to see the training of the orators. So we saw it live and real in, in Tibet at Drepong, and now we saw the next generation in Dharamsala. So it was really meaningful because you can see the continuity from one place to the other of this particular practice. And by the way, there were female uh, Buddhist nuns there as well. They weren't participating in the oratory, but they were there and they were going to a practice on the other or study on the other side of the mountain. It sounds like we could go on about Dharamsala for quite some time. You know, for a group that was concerned about India and its conditions, the worst physical conditions we had were in Dharamsala, but nobody complained and nobody talked about it because they wanted to be there. And the rest of the place was so fascinating and so interesting. We were out and about all the time. And so it didn't matter that, you know, the hotel wasn't. But the people there were fine. Absolutely. Absolutely That was, that's how they live. Right. And, but my group didn't complain is really what I'm telling you. Right. The Westerners could. caught up in the moment and what you're seeing and what you're feeling. Right. And that's more important than anything else. And is it really at a height that is almost Himalayan? It's uh, getting there. It's hard to breathe. Yeah. No, it's, it's less than that. It's maybe only about 5,000 to 6,000 feet. Whereas uh, in in Tibet, you start at 8,000. Mm. And you go to 12,000, and it's at 8,000 that you need medicine to sleep Mm. because you need more space in your lungs. Tibetans who have been raised in Tibet have a much larger lung capacity because that's been developed as a genetic trait to be able to breathe in such a cold and wet climate. Uh, That wasn't so obvious in Dharamsala. And then when we left Dharamsala, we took the bus again because flying out of Dharamsala is hard because very often it's fogged in. So our tour travels down out of the clouds of the Kangra Valley, back down toward Delhi. But on the way, I understand you'd made an eye-opening stop in Amritsar. So we took the bus to go down the hill back into landlocked India, and we were in Amritsar, 
which is the home of the Sikhs. And it's a very big city, very bustling, more like uh, Varanasi than Mumbai. It's it's a very Indian city. And everybody basically is a Sikh. And in the center of the city is the Golden Palace. It's like Mecca. Every Sikh in the world is expected to visit there once in their lifetime. It was fabulous. The buildings themselves, the whole aura of the place, you'd stand and you'd just look and take it in and take pictures and watch. There's a man-made lake in the center of it on which is a golden building where they keep their holiest treasures and people line up to go see them. And then people walk around and pray in the various temples and archways around. But the Sikhs remember their social commitment to their society. They have a kitchen, and they feed 65,000 people a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And if you come, we could have sat down and eaten with them. The Sikhs come, and it's all run by volunteers. So every Sikh in the neighborhood does some time each week volunteering at this food kitchen to feed 65,000 people a day. And we saw, I mean, we were able to go through the kitchens. We saw the women who were making chapatis. We saw the men who were doing something else or, or, or cooking the chapatis. We saw all the silverware being washed, cleaned, and then put back out. It was an amazing view of a working place that cares for its people and has figured out a way to do it. I mean, we spent quite a bit of time there because it was so amazing and so surprising to us. You wish we could do that here. Oh, definitely. We should do more of that here. What a beautiful way to end the day. One more day left on your itinerary. And when you woke up? Well, this was our big day in Delhi. We started at the Red Fort. I mentioned the Red Fort before because there's a Red Fort around the Taj and there's a Red Fort in Jaipur. Each one is uniquely different because they were built in the geography and the place that was made. So although they all represent the British government in India, they were meant to fit the space that was allocated. So we saw the Red Fort in and out, and we were actually on a rickshaw ride, which wound up taking us to the Friday Mosque, the Jama Masjid. Well, let me ask you, just you say Red Fort, but what exactly is it that there are these forts? They were formerly British forts, which the British created in all of the places where they hold sway to control the colony of India. And when they left, they were still there standing, and the Indian government used them to describe the Raj period there and or to protect things within it that represent their own history. And once the British left, the forts now are used as... Museums and places where you can see as it was. I see. And the same thing, in a sense, the Jama Masjid goes back about 200 years. It is a very large Muslim temple in the center of Old Delhi. And you come up upon it in the rickshaws, and then you get out and you have to walk up easily 25 stairs to get to a platform, which is the base of this mosque, which is the largest mosque in India. And then you go inside and, again, has that very open space of easily four sections of an open space around the mosque, which sits in the center. But they now have a rule that women have to be covered, and so they lend you a long garment that goes from your neck to your shoes and ties around your body with long sleeves. So each of us had on a different print of an early Indian piece of cloth 
was really very funny. So we go around, and there are Indians there, Muslims, who want to take our picture because we look so funny to them. And of course, we want to take their pictures as a common exchange. And we get the history of where the sun comes up and where it goes down or what it means to the mosque. We go inside and it's a beautiful mosque filled with oriental rugs and light coming in from upper windows. The men are one side, the women are on another, but we can explore both and see what's going on. Thousands of people come to prayer. They actually have pictures of it, their annual presentations. Not only do they fill the inside of the mosque, which is very large, but they fill the square surrounding the mosque on this uploaded platform, very large. Then we went down and saw some of the history and some of the materials of Islam in India, and we were meeting other people from many cultures who were there, and we were talking. This is outside of uh, the Friday Mosque. Yeah, it's the, coming uh, down. We're sort of still in it, but coming out into the field and having conversations and taking pictures and exploring another religion. So as I said before, it was Hinduism, Buddhism, and Sikhs. Now we've added Muslims to the group because they all represent a part of Indian culture. And then we went to uh, Rajgat. Rajgat is the cremation place of Mahatma Gandhi. And it's in the center of a very large field filled with green. And you can walk down and walk around it, or you can stay on the side and look above it. And it was a day for children, school children in uniform, to visit the Rajgat. So we were standing here, and the kids were coming in in different clothes in different directions because they were all coming to see this part of their history. Mm. So it was wonderful to see the kids and their teachers and the warmth, way they reacted, and yet we got to see where he was cremated. His ashes were placed in a different place. From there, we went to the India Gate. You think it's a gate. Well, it is. It's this big monument like the uh, Brooklyn Plaza, Grand Army Plaza. An arch. An arch. As And then you go through the arch, and you're in open space, which has huge government buildings separated from each other, by open space. So they're not close to each other at all, but it's where the government buildings are, the Parliament of India, two houses, the uh, Department of Home Affairs and the Department of Foreign Affairs and all of the others and the, the court and the judiciary. You see them and they're quite impressive because unlike other modern places where you put the buildings close to each other, they each are surrounded by this open space, somewhat like I've been describing in the various religious buildings that we've gone into, a big open space around each building. So it was really very interesting to see. And finally, we ended the day with a lunch in a Sri Lankan restaurant. So we had food different than India. We'd been eating Indian and Tibetan food throughout. And Sri Lankan food is very hot, and you eat with your hands. It was hotter than the Indian food, so everybody's mm. making a comment about that. <laughs> right? And then finally, we went to Tibet House. And Tibet House is a Tibetan government organization, an educational place in the middle of Delhi so that people understand each other's culture. So they have a museum, they have presentations, they have a library, and they have talks, Q&A, about the nature of Tibet and Buddhism, both in India and around the world, so people will know. But for us, it was a revisit to Dharamsala, because some of the things we'd seen in Dharamsala and that we see at our own museum were involved in Tibet House in Delhi. So it was a perfect end to two weeks of exploring a new world. Thanks so much, Peg, for taking the time to sit down and help describe how colorful and in-depth 
a tour with the Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Art could be. Give us a peek into the museum's future plans to go abroad. So we are now going to Japan in September of 2017, and we're planning for Bhutan in September of 2018. And along the way, we sometimes do small trips, side trips. We went to London uh, when one of our pieces went to London to open Asia Week in London at the Welcome Gallery. We are hoping to go to Cologne next year in December because the University of Cologne is having a Tibetan display and is taking some pieces from our collection. Mm. And we try to do day trips to interesting places that have either a Tibetan or a Buddhist theme that's connected. We went to Philadelphia to see the Mongol exhibit. We have gone to the Tibetan exhibits in the city. And so we keep up trying to see and add to our knowledge and our experiences and build on what we knew to what is today. And so the trip to India then allowed us to really see Hindus in depth, Buddhists in depth, and Sikhs. And the Sikhs were like a little surprise at the end that we all remember with uh, great fondness and great visual pictures. We try to have something related to the mission and vision of the museum on every trip that we take so that we can add to people's understanding of an ancient culture in a modern world. Well, this third and final podcast discussing the 2016 Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Art Tour of India and Dharamsala is nearing its end. I hope our podcast subscribers enjoyed it as much as we did making it. And thanks again, Peg Harrington, for giving us your in-depth descriptions of this Eastern landscape and its people. I look forward to having you sit down and tell us about your next experience on one of those upcoming Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Art tours that you will be a part of. That would be great. Thank you.